0: Mental illness, mental disorders, these are common phrases. Looking at the psychological suffering of human beings through a medical lens has taken center stage for as long as many of us can remember. But more and more, and especially in recent months, the biomedical model has come under fire. Groundbreaking research published in the last few months by psychiatrist Joanna Moncrief has proven without a shadow of a doubt that the serotonin hypothesis or the idea that mental illnesses, predominantly depression, are caused by an imbalance of chemicals in the brain is nothing more than a myth, a myth with very dire consequences. Millions of people right now truly believe that they are experiencing signs and symptoms of mental disorders and illnesses because something is chemically wrong with their brains. That these imbalances can be passed down from generation to generation. This new research by Joanna Moncrief is rattling the entire psychiatric establishment and when old views come crumbling down, new ones emerge And that's exactly what's happening now. This new paradigm encourages us to zoom out, to view our psychological suffering from a design perspective instead of a disorder perspective. Maybe, just maybe, there's nothing wrong with the way your brain is working. Maybe it's responding exactly as it believes it needs to in order to keep you safe. help you survive through this new lens we can begin to see painful symptoms as natural responses responses we can learn to become aware of and change rather than constantly monitoring our own behavior for cues or signs that we are somehow broken or disordered this new framework can also help us move forward from the unhelpful cycle of blaming our caregivers for the way our lives continue to spiral out of control and take a higher evolutionary perspective as to why they responded and reacted the way they did when we were growing up. As children, our brains are incredibly sensitive, even seemingly minor occurrences can be seen as devastating realities of abandonment, neglect, and trauma. These early childhood experiences carve deeply ingrained patterns and become the framework through which we see the world and other people. But what if you could break free from this framework? You never chose it anyway. What if by becoming aware of this framework, And seeing your symptoms as an adaptation rather than a sign that you're dysfunctional, disordered, or broken. Would that change the way you viewed yourself? Would it change the hope you have for your future? This is exactly what we'll be discussing on today's episode with my guest, Justin Garson. Justin is professor of philosophy at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, City University of New York, as well as a contributor for psychologytoday.com. Justin writes on the philosophy of madness, evolution of the mind, and purpose in nature. Justin has two new books, one called Madness, a Philosophical Exploration, and another titled The Biological Mind, A Philosophical Introduction. Justin and I sat down to discuss the limitations of the biomedical model and how we can move from what he calls a disorder model to a design model. After our conversation, I had the absolute pleasure of being able to get a sneak peek of his new article on Psychology Today that dropped right after our interview which is titled is Borderline Personality Disorder and Adaptation, Seeing Beyond the Dysfunction Paradigm. So if you'd like to hear that article, I'll be reading it after our interview. So stick around for that. But now let's learn about moving from the disorder model to the design model with my guest, Justin Garson.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?
4: Thank you so much, Molly, for having me on your podcast. And I've actually, I've really been benefiting uh, listening to these recently. I've been learning a lot. Uh, so yeah, I'm a philosophy professor at Hunter College, uh, City University of New York. And I write a lot on the philosophy of psychiatry and the history of psychiatry. And I guess in a word, my main Uh, focus is trying to come up with alternatives to the biomedical conception of mental illness.
0: What is the simplest way that you could define the biomedical model of mental illness in layman's terms for my listeners?
4: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. (laughs) And it's a really important one. I'm so glad you asked because everybody I know seems to feel there's something wrong with a biomedical model of mental illness, but nobody is quite sure what it is. Uh, So here's the way that I define it in terms of the notion of an inner dysfunction. The idea is when we look at a mental illness, we're seeing that something about the way you're thinking, the way you're feeling, the way you're acting, uh, something inside of you isn't working the way that it's supposed to. So you have this picture in mind of here's how the body is supposed to work. Here's how the mind is supposed to work. But, uh-oh, in your case with a mental illness, something isn't working the way it should. Uh, and this falls under the jurisdiction of medicine. And we've got to go in there and fix it. And a lot of people use this metaphor of, um, they say, oh, depression is like diabetes or schizophrenia is like cancer. And I think that absolutely nails the medical model because the idea is that, Something about your thinking, your feeling, your acting stems from this disease inside of you. It's the notion of dysfunction, I think, which really is the centerpiece of the biomedical model. And so one of the things that I've been doing in looking at alternatives is saying there's at least a tradition in psychiatry of people thinking about mental illness in terms of design as designed responses to the problems of life. So I guess I would say the opposite of the disease model is the design model. The opposite of my seeing, say, my depression as a disorder is seeing it as a designed response to the problems that I'm dealing with.
0: Why do you think that this conversation is coming up more and more now?
3: Recently, there's been a ton of research coming out about, The serotonin theory of depression, as you know, saying that that is all not a thing. (laughs) That's not a very academic way of putting it. But we've been fed for so long the idea that mental illness, as we're calling it, even just saying mental illness is part of the disease model. No. So mental illness is due to chemical imbalances in our brain. And I myself found uh, myself in the office of a GP in London, the first time that I decided to seek help and was told that there, I had lower levels of serotonin. So I should go on an antidepressant, mm-hmm. which was, uh, citalopram at the time, many members of my family are an- on antidepressants and they truly believe that they have a chemical imbalance in their brain that was passed on genet genetically. How have we gotten to this point? And can you speak a little bit about your understanding of this research that's coming out that counters this view that we all have uh, that serotonin and that chemical imbalances might be the cause of our, quote, mental illness?
4: Yeah, what an incredible question. I mean, this whole issue of this chemical imbalance picture that we've gotten so i became depressed uh in the late 80s right when prozac came out i was a teenager i went through a very severe depression and i happened to hit really at the peak of this language of chemical imbalances because it went along with a marketing plan for uh, uh, prozac the idea was that your depression is due to the fact that your brain just isn't pumping out enough serotonin Serotonin's the feel-good molecule and if you take this drug, that will normalize your serotonin levels in the same way that you would take insulin, uh, say, if your pancreas just isn't, uh, isn't producing enough insulin, you could take supplements uh, for that. And, and I, I think that this chemical imbalance metaphor, and it really is coming under fire, and I'm so happy that it is. Uh, So just last month, uh, Johanna Moncrief at King's College London and her colleagues put out this massive paper just demonstrating that there's no evidence that low serotonin level actually causes uh, depression. And it's something that psychiatrists have been suspicious of for some time. They've known for a while that there hasn't been a lot of evidence for the serotonin uh, hypothesis. But I think this paper was kind of like the last nail in the coffin. Uh, and I think it's been really damaging, partly because of the way that the serotonin hypothesis created in this in our public imagination a very false picture of what mental disorders are like. The idea was that, and I certainly remember this from the 80s, that each mental disorder probably corresponds to some distinctive uh, chemical imbalance, and you just get got to give us enough time, and eventually we'll be able to tweak those chemicals uh, and put you back on track. So I think that the serotonin hypothesis was far more damaging than people uh, uh, realize. And I think people are starting to get fed up. I really do at this point, I have the sense, and this is just my intuitive sense of things, that a lot of psychiatrists are saying, well, we know it's not just serotonin, it's more complicated, give us more time, give us more money, Give us better genome sequencing technologies. I think people are really getting fed up and they're looking for other alternatives. And so that's why I'm hoping that this is a good time to start saying, okay, let's not just keep digging into genetic and neurological causes of depression, but let's start philosophically thinking about what else depression might be other than a disease.
0: Absolutely. And you talk about these alternatives. And I know that
3: before we started recording, you mentioned how much time you spend as an academic speaking to people in psychiatry circles, and you are sending me articles uh, that are recently coming out before our interview. So you spend a significant amount of your time interacting with people in these circles and reading academic research. And what would you say based upon what? Information you have access to in academia, what are the most viable alternatives to the medical model?
4: I mean, I think that is the question that everybody kind of wants an answer to, and there are no yeah. clear answers to. And here's an example: I was at a talk not long ago, and I said, okay, raise your hand if you think there's a problem with a biomedical model. And you know, 90% of people raise their hand. And then I said, raise your hand if you're prepared to give a short explanation of an alternative, a viable, cogent alternative to biomedical model. And it was like crickets in there. Mm. So some people are like, well, neurodiversity, or some people are like, well, maybe adaptation, or some people are like normal variation, or some people are like, oh, it's trauma. But there's there's no, and all of these are valid ideas, but there's no kind of one emerging uh, picture. So a lot of my research has been trying to develop at least one uh, alternative uh, picture. And a lot of this uh, comes from my own experiences with depression and my dad had uh, bipolar disorder and when things got pretty bad and he was off his medications he would often have psychotic episodes and he would have to be hospitalized so a lot of my growing up was visiting my dad in these mental hospitals and then uh at the age of sixteen getting hospitalized uh, myself for depression so I feel like this is This is just part of my formative experience of dealing Mm -hmm. with psychiatrists, dealing with the labels, dealing with the drugs, dealing with the, you know, your dad has a chemical imbalance or now you have a chemical uh, imbalance. And what was interesting is, you know, I was 16, I was very suicidal. And so I was hospitalized, I was put on Paxil and then I was put on uh, Prozac. As As a 16 year old. Yeah, that's right. I was hospitalized for about 6 weeks. I mean, it was it was it was severe enough and I I think it was probably a good idea uh at the time. But what struck me was that all of the messaging was, "Hey, there's something wrong with how your brain's working and the Paxil and then the Prozac are going to get that uh, sorted out." But then we went to group therapy and the whole message of group therapy was, well, you're just an irrational teenager and you don't have any perspective. You know, you get dumped by a girlfriend and you think it's the end of the world. And so our job in group therapy is to help you see the bigger picture and not be so irrational. So it was either one or both of these things. Your brain is broken And by the way, you're irrational and we're trying to help you. And in all that time, I never saw this other message, which I've been reading a lot about and studying a lot about, which is this idea that depression could be a designed response. It could be Nature effectively designed us to get depressed in response to certain circumstances so that we could deal with those circumstances. That's a paradigm that I've been looking at, doing a lot of research on, but nobody ever said anything like that to me. And I kind of wonder what might have changed if one of these doctors said, Hey, you know, Justin. I'm not sure about this, but I've been reading some of this evolutionary research, and I've been reading about this idea that maybe depression is like nature's signal uh, that's prompting you to try to make a positive life change. And I wonder if there's something in your life that your depression might be a response to. That might have changed things for me because I might have started to think okay, I'm having problems that perhaps some of my friends and my family members aren't having, and the depression might be one way that my brain is designed to cope with those problems and now let me attack the problems directly rather than form this idea that okay my brain is defective but thank god I have these pills that are that are going to correct correct that uh, you know defect
0: what a profound
3: explanation of what you went through and what i love is this more evolutionary viewpoint that you're talking about Where is this a natural response to what you're experiencing? Our parents are supposed to make us feel safe and seen and heard. And if our parents are so preoccupied with their own suffering, then how can they do the job of the parent to make you feel safe? It's only understandable that you would feel these feelings of what's the point of it all. And maybe I don't even want to be here anymore because as a child, I'm supposed to feel safe and I don't. And so I just want to press the exit button. And I feel like so many people that are slapped with a BPD diagnosis, ironically, many of them are women. And I almost wonder if you would have been a girl in the eighties, if you would have been slapped with a BPD diagnosis, because primarily women that present in inpatient psychiatric facilities that present with suicidal ideation immediately are labeled borderline personality disorder. It makes me wonder how you would have been treated differently if you would have been a woman presenting with the same symptomology. So they just diagnosed you purely with depression, not with any other type of disorder.
4: No, that was it. But I mean, if you think about it, I was starting to get on drugs. I was starting to get violent. I was starting to get destructive. I was (laughs) starting to destroy property. I mean, there was this whole cluster of different things that I was doing to deal with Uh, my situation. And I have no doubt that a slightly different uh, therapist or psychiatrist or had I but a woman, they might have said, you know, this this violent and destructive behavior, this is this is a personality disorder. You're not just down in the dumps. You know, this is this is something other than that. I think looking at me as a guy, saying, well, yeah, you're down in the dumps. And sometimes guys, you know, act out and they break stuff when they're mad. I think there's absolutely a gender disparity uh, taking place here that you're describing.
3: When did you know that you were depressed? How did that manifest for you? When did you start feeling
4: depressed? That's a great question. And it's, and it, touches upon these issues that you talk about of trauma. And I know now there's this kind of push to make every, to see everything in terms of trauma, but I think that the kinds of experiences that a child's brain can interpret as traumatic are very general experiences. They don't always have to be extreme abuse or extreme uh, neglect. So one thing about me is that I was putting a, my dad uh, because he was having psychotic episodes when I was very young, like one years old, he started having issues and that led to a divorce. And so he wasn't around. Then I was with my mom and then she started having to work to just, you know, cover, cover bills uh, as you would. And so I got dumped into this uh, daycare. And I think for me, given everything that I had been through getting stuck in this daycare, when I was three years old, was, and I hate to use the word traumatic because I don't want to denigrate or belittle other people's experiences of severe neglect or severe abuse. But I think the child's brain, and partly for evolutionary reasons, we interpret some of these things as abandonment. And I feel that that was part of this formative experience that kind of helped to solidify certain personality traits or dispositions that I have for example I'm intensely sensitive to rejection you know I'm always on the lookout for rejection and if I feel like somebody's even hinting at rejection I just immediately I'm like the battle armor comes out and I'm like I'm out of here and I and I do think that part of that has to do with the way that my personality uh, was shaped but this is funny uh it's kind of I mean it's not funny but it it is kind of funny There was a psychiatrist in my daycare when I was about four years old, and he saw this one kid sitting in the corner crying a lot. And he talked to some of the the people there at the daycare, and they said, yeah, this is pretty much what Justin does. He kind of sits by himself. He cries a lot. And somehow that was brought to the attention of my mom. And so my mom reached out to a psychiatrist uh, to get me some help. So I started seeing a psychiatrist when I was five years old. So I think that I've always grown up under under the mental health system and I've always grown up with this with this you know if I do something weird or I break down or I get really angry it's like okay I wonder if you know if that's part of Justin's if that's a mental illness or that's part of his depression acting up so I think I've always lived under the shadow of this kind of psychiatric um dysfunction type you know, interpretation of my of my mind. But yeah, I, I I do think that some of the, let me just say that some of the, and I like how you say it, it's not so much when you talk about BPD, it's not so much about an identity as much as just identifying certain traits that are associated with that label. What I can say is that certain traits, certain personality traits, I think were formed at uh during those early years. And I think perhaps, you know, as a teenager, uh, trying to fit in, just trying to make sense of my social world and fit into a uh, social network, you know, maybe that triggered some of those same uh, fears about exclusion, ostracism,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
4: then, and then, but it's hard to say. But, but what I really like about this idea of, say, depression as a designed response to the problems of Uh, to the problems of life is that in either case, it's not necessarily that my brain was dysfunctional or it wasn't working the way it was supposed to. No, in fact, my brain was working exactly the way that it's supposed to. When you're putting that kind of, when you feel rightly or wrongly uh, that you were abandoned, or when you feel rightly or wrongly that you're being ostracized or excluded, uh, our brains are designed to respond to that in a lot of different ways, either through aggression, sometimes through self-harm, sometimes through acting out, sometimes through violence, sometimes through further isolating myself. I mean, there are a lot of designed mechanisms that the brain is kind of supposed to use when we're in that situation. And I think if there's One message that I'd like to communicate to people in my situation is, you know, please get the help that you need. If you need to be on antidepressants for a while, that's great. If you need therapy for a while, that's great. But don't immediately accept this dysfunction label. Don't immediately accept this paradigm where well, there's something wrong with your brain. No, in fact, it could very well be that everything in your brain is working exactly the way that it's supposed to. And when you have that idea in mind, the enemy isn't my brain. The enemy isn't my chemical imbalances or whatever. The enemy is, okay, what are the experiences that are leading me to feel this way? And how can I tackle those experiences directly? So I think the harmfulness of these kind of, you know, chemical imbalances that it really it points the finger at the wrong kind of thing. It points the finger at something inside of you rather than the situation that you're trying to cope with.
3: Absolutely. And what's coming up for me hearing you describe your experience is I think too often you hear adults say, you know, well, my childhood wasn't that traumatic. It wasn't that bad compared to what other people have been through. Right. And to me, there. That's very true, right? Where there are other people, there's always going to be someone who had a worse experience. But to me, that's not focusing on the right thing. It's going, when you were a child, it doesn't matter about anyone else's experience. Your developing brain perceived what happened to you as a threat to your survival. So as adults, it's not this comparison game of who had a worse experience. It's going, how can I? look as an adult and say, I'm safe now. I have agency now, but what happened to me as a child that maybe would have deepened these pathways in my brain that are convincing me that I can't survive? And how can I start reaffirming to myself that I'm safe now?
4: Yeah, I think I think that's such a valuable insight that it's not necessarily... I was abused. I was neglected. My parents did these awful, awful things to me. It's no, that this is how my brain interpreted things that were going on that really had nothing to do with me specifically. And I think a lot of the new evolutionary research that we're getting, I mean, this really started in the 60s and 70s with people like John Bowlby looking at attachment and looking at really, okay, what are the primates' basic needs? But I think more and more as we develop a richer evolutionarily informed picture of the mind, what we're able to see is that, okay, even the experience of say, getting dumped in a daycare, you know, for, for 12 hours a day, given the way that our minds are designed, we can very easily interpret that as abandonment. And then certain circuits get triggered. And some of those circuits can have more or less long-term impacts on your personality, on your disposition. Uh, I, I think I've always seen the world as effectively a hostile and unpredictable place. I think there's always been a little part of me that says, you know, the world is hostile, the world is unpredictable, and you gotta uh you gotta fight to get what you want out of this life. But um I also think one other thing that's really valuable about what you said, that it's it's not a question of my parents, my caretakers did these awful, awful things to me. It's a question of how my brain interpreted what was happening, Uh, that it gets you away from the blame game. It gets you away from the idea of my parents did these awful things. It's taken me a long time to get to the point where I could say, oh, wait a minute. My dad wasn't abandoning me. He just, because of his schizophrenia, well, Back then it was labeled as a paranoid schizophrenia and then it became a bipolar disorder, but because of his uh, illness, he simply couldn't be with me. And then, My mom, oh, she wasn't abandoning me. She had to work full-time in order to pay rent. That took me a long time to kind of wrap my head around that fact. It does have to do with how we interpret what happened to us, for sure. It
0: does, and it's understanding that now you can view from this like high-level,
3: wise-mind picture that now you have a completely different perspective as an adult. But again, we have to understand how the child's mind works and have compassion for that younger version of ourself and realize that the ways that our body goes into this fight or flight response. Now, as an adult, like I've discussed, like when I get one email from my boss, like, Hey, can I call you? It's like immediately (laughs) I am jobless and on the street. Right.
4: Look for a new job when you get that email.
3: Yeah. But that, that just goes to show, or if you get a text from your a teenage girl that's 19 and she gets a text from her boyfriend, like, hey, can we talk? It's like immediately I'm broken up with, right? These fight or flight responses, instead of going like, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm so stupid. It's instead, if you go, okay, whoa, I'm going into fight or flight mode right now. A very primitive part of my brain is trying to convince me that I'm not safe, but can I, like in DBT, check the facts? Am I safe? If I get fired right now, I can probably find a new job. There are ways that I can, you know, survive, but it's all about, as I described to my listeners over and over, Justin, the mantra that I try to uh, drive into my own mind and theirs is if we can find a way to put some space between our feelings and our reactions, Mm -hmm. that space is where we have the power.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I'm going to I'm going to write that down right, right now on a notepad. <laughs> yeah, I don't forget it. I like that. And let me just give you one more mantra. This is the one that I've been thinking about a lot, too, and that I often have to come back to when I see myself reacting in these apparently irrational ways to just the the smallest hint of, of uh, say, rejection mm.
1: uh,
4: is the kinds of thoughts that I'm having are part of this designed response of my brain. It's not a disorder. It's not a disease. My brain is acting exactly the way that it's supposed to given what I've been through. And that helps me to to say, okay, there's nothing wrong with me. My brain is working the way that it's supposed to. The problem is that the kinds of coping mechanisms that made a lot of sense when i was a kid or they made a lot of sense when i was 15 years old don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense when i'm 49 and i'm trying to you know talk to my boss uh, you know about a promotion those uh their, their design responses nothing's wrong with my brain but um they're not that useful to me anymore so let me
3: Exactly just, let me and there's that. a difference between surviving and thriving now, right? Because our brains are wired for ancient primal survival, adapting and reacting to genuine threats like a predator. Our brains are not wired for the corporate world. And before relationships were just about procreating and you know what I mean? It was all very simple and that's how we need to remember that our brains are wired. And so we're still adapting. And that's what I try to remind myself too, is this spiritual aspect of myself is the thing that is looking down and watching this primal body of mine reacting to all these things and that's why i have to work to create that space cuz we're never going to beat out our biology right mm-hmm. we're we're going to keep on having these fight or flight reactions they're there to keep us alive but what we can do to hack our evolution is to just go okay can i create space between those feelings and reactions
4: absolutely i love that i love how you put you put the picture into this broader evolutionary narrative not just okay bad things happened to me when i was a kid and i developed some coping mechanisms and oops sometimes those coping mechanisms get triggered by stuff that don't need to be triggering them but there's a longer evolutionary history of you know humans in their modern form have been around for you know 200,000 years the vast majority of that time we're living in small hunter gatherer bands of maybe 300 people at most foraging gathering maybe some hunting sex food yeah. <laughs> raising our kids and the kinds of conditions that our minds are designed to deal with are very different than the kind of 9 to 5 and so it could be that you know my boss calling in for uh calling me in for a meeting and I'm worrying that I'm, I'm going to get fired could be triggering some of the same kinds of survival circuits that would have been triggered if, you know, the chief of my clan was telling me I'm about to get ostracized for something awful uh, that I did. And now I'm going to be abandoned and I'm going to slowly, you know, starve to death while everybody laughs at me <laughs> but That's exactly mind, right. wired for this, this way I, of life.
2: That's so
3: true. And I just read something the other day that was actually saying almost the same thing that you said, which is. Our rejection to abandonment, it's actually not a flaw, is that we're tribal beings. And so, therefore, if we perceive that we're going to be ostracized, mm-hmm. that's a threat to our survival. Because when we were tribes people, as you described before, if you were ostracized from your clan, that means you were dead.
4: Like, you starved to death in the woods. But yes, like, but now,
3: if you are ostracized, maybe from like a group of bitchy girls in, in junior <laughs> high, probably a good thing and you're probably going to be better off for it. Or if you're hired from a job, you there may be some strife there, but you will not die. The idea that we're trying to focus on here is that we're not going to beat our biology, our external circumstances and the way our culture is, it's going to trick us into thinking that we're going to die. And then we're also up against the wider cultural narrative of psychiatry, which is saying, there's something wrong with your brain. And I feel like this just makes me feel like we need to have so much compassion for ourselves because we're up against so much.
4: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's absolutely right that when you take this kind of design standpoint, okay, our, our minds are designed to get depressed in these circumstances, or our minds are designed to get anxious in these circumstances, that goes hand in hand with a kind of criticism of contemporary society. So going back to depression for one minute, one of the theories that I think is really interesting, I don't know if it's true or not, but the idea is that depression can be nature's way of trying to get you to detach from an unrealistic life goal. So suppose I want to quit my job as a philosopher and, you know, be a hip hop artist. I'm going to fail. Doors are going to get slammed in my face. And I might say, no, 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 I can do it. And the theory is uh, that eventually depression will sink in and that produces this anhedonia. uh, I lose pleasure in a lot of things. And that gives me the kind of uh, a timeout that I need to form more realistic life goals. Again, that's just one particular theory. But now combine that theory with the idea that we are constantly being fed information that if you're not a YouTube celebrity, by the time you're 19, you're a loser. You know, if you're not a a sports figure, or if you're not uh, famous, or if you're not um, an amazing musician, or if you haven't accomplished these things that your friends are accomplishing, and now we're connected up social networking with hundreds and hundreds of our friends, colleagues who are, some of them are going to be doing these incredible things. Our brains are inundated with this message that you're a failure. Back in the, you know, hunter-gatherer times, <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of upward mobility. There was only so many things you could do. You know, I could maybe hunt this boar and make my clansmen very proud of me, but that was about the only thing that you were going to accomplish. Taking this evolutionary perspective and and really criticizing the standards that our society holds us to are one and the same thing. And then, you know, don't even, I mean, get me started with when you have those things, and then you have this third voice of psychiatry saying your brain is defective. Your brain isn't working the, the way it's supposed to, because clearly you can't handle this. Well, here, take these pills. That's a lot. I have two kids. And I just, sometimes I think, What a world they're coming into.
3: It is a very uncertain time right now and we're up against so much, but I do take this hopeful and maybe I'm just a perpetual optimist. It's like you mentioned at the beginning of our interview today where people are getting fed up. If this medical model of mental illness was working, we would not see an increasing number every time the DSM releases of more and more disorder labels. We would not be seeing an explosion of people that are suicidal and it would be getting better and not worse. And I feel like there's always this breaking point moment where people start going enough is enough, as you said, and we want something different. And I feel like we're there. I want my podcast to age well and I'm so optimistic that in 15, hopefully sooner, but like 15 to 20 years people can listen back on these and say like these people were really on to something. I myself have been on antidepressants before and here's the thing, I felt better like for a time and it and I think when I was suicidal whatever happened whether it was placebo effect whether it was whatever it was they helped me. And so I can never discount, um, anyone wanting to go on antidepressants, but what I do think needs to be happening more is that psychiatrists need to be giving people all of the options. Say you can take this medication, but if you do, we'll have to keep increasing your dosage maybe, or changing medications. They need to be open about withdrawal and what that looks like because psychiatric withdrawal is very rough. Um, And then when we're potentially going to be given a personality disorder label, I wish that psychiatrists could be open with people about what that might mean, having that on their medical records, encouraging them to get a second opinion because it's a serious thing. I want people to be better informed and I want people to seek second opinions and I want people to start thinking for themselves more. Mm
4: -hmm. That's my
3: goal with this Mm -hmm. podcast.
4: That's wonderful. And I'm glad to hear you say that, you know, that makes me feel better when you say, I do think that we're at this breaking point where people are just getting fed up with the medical model. They're getting fed up with the diagnoses. They're getting fed up with the dysfunction label, because that's my sense that people are getting fed up with it. But that makes me feel very hopeful because hopefully our work can have some impact if we're hitting at the right time. Uh, About the antidepressants, I think it's an important point, and I maybe should have mentioned it earlier, that a lot of people, when they read this study about Johanna Moncrief's, uh, you know, when she effectively debunked uh, the serotonin hypothesis, once and for all, a lot of people formed the idea that uh, the take-home message was that antidepressants don't work. And as you point out, that's not necessarily the take-home uh, message the claim wasn't that antidepressants don't work, but that we don't really know why they work. We thought they worked because they fixed your brain was dysfunctional. it wasn't producing enough serotonin. Turns out that doesn't uh, seem to be true. That doesn't mean that they don't uh, work. that doesn't mean that they don't help you. you know the analogy that people often use here is um we can take aspirin to relieve a fever, but that doesn't mean that the fever comes from the fact that your brain is producing, abnormally low quantities of aspirin.
3: I love that analogy. I love Joanna Moncriefs. I think that she's getting taken all wrong. And of course she's getting completely attacked by like the pharmaceutical industry because it's not very good for business that she's questioning all of their marketing gold. When I took antidepressants, I experienced a severe numbing of my emotions when I watched profoundly sad things that will make me cry instantly when I'm in my normal state of mind. When I was on antidepressants, there were profoundly grief-worthy things that happened in my life and and disturbing things that I saw that Provoked no reaction from me. And I was highly suicidal when I started taking them. And I will say that it helped because I think it numbed my emotions and it made them less extreme. And I think that an argument could be said that, like, that's a life saving thing. But what I started to take issue with was that I didn't see it as a long term strategy for myself because, in order to unpack my own trauma and to start becoming wiser in my life and become more resilient to the stressors that were inevitable in my life, Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to develop that resiliency. And if I couldn't feel the feelings, I saw a problem with that. And so I started to feel like I wanted to wean myself off of nice. those drugs.
4: My uh, Well, my my dad, when, you know, in the seventies, he was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic and they had this wonder drug at the time. Uh, well, it came out in the fifties, chlorpromazine, sometimes called Haldol. Uh, and they said, well, this drug is so incredible because suddenly you have these people who are having hallucinations and delusions and they're agitated and they suddenly calm down and nothing bothers them en- anymore I guess that their schizophrenia must come from the fact that their brain isn't producing enough dopamine. It was the exact same reasoning as we had in the serotonin hypothesis. And now people look back and you say, "No, you dummy, you just hit him with this massive sedative, of course he feels better. Of course that voices don't bother him as much." So I think some of the some of the drugs may work and I'm not a medical expert so take exactly. it with a grain of salt, but I sometimes wonder if some of these drugs don't have the effectiveness that they do because they're just doing something very general, a very general sedating effect, say. I think that's the case for the uh, chlorpromazine.
3: I think that these medications, if it works for you, great. But some Mm -hmm. people, it doesn't work for Same thing with these diagnostic labels. The benefits that I've found from the BPD label is that it helped me find community. I wouldn't have this podcast without the Mm -hmm. BPD label. The problem is if we stop asking the hard questions and if we stop digging deeper, we can't move forward. It is against my nature to stop asking questions. We need to push for better information and ask the hard questions. Mm
4: -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think part of that too, uh, among those hard questions and among those kind of paradigm changes is looking at the history of these labels, looking at the history of these drugs, looking at the history of these paradigms. When exactly did psychiatrists get enamored Uh, by this biomedical view. Well, I mean, there's a lot to be said historically, but part of the impetus came from the 1970s. There was a lot of criticism. There was a lot of anti-psychiatry. There are films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, kind of Mm -hmm. making fun of psychiatrists. And there's this, the effectiveness of some of these drugs, say for schizophrenia, there was a sense that if we take on this biomedical identity, then we're going to have the credibility uh, that we deserve. These are all very historically contingent things that happened that led people to this biomedical paradigm. It's not as if it's been there forever. And we were talking about these labels like BPD or paranoid schizophrenia. These labels seem to change every 10 years, every 20 years. And I, I think there's a real kind of liberating value in looking closely at the history of these paradigms, looking closely at the history of these labels, because it helps just to get some distance from them. It's a cultural invention. And we need to know a little bit about the cultural background.
0: I've quoted this phrase.
3: It's from a Polish philosopher, and I don't know who said it, but he says, you know, the map is not the territory. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always come back to for my listeners. Is I have found so, I felt seen and heard. And at the end of the day, psychologically, what do we all want? We want to feel seen. And when people read about BPD, they feel seen. They feel like, okay, this is me. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a map. It's not the territory. You have to go out and find out what that means in the scheme of your own life and not be overly identified with the map because you have to go out and actually explore the
4: territory. Perfect. Perfect analogy. These are labels. These are pointing. Yes. These are labels pointing to a very complex reality and everybody kind of has to figure out for themselves how to, how to make sense of these labels and how to associate with these labels.
0: Justin, thank you so much for being on the
3: podcast. How would you like to leave my listeners?
4: Thank you so much. Well, one thing, a few months ago, I began contributing regularly to psychologytoday.com. What I use these contributions to do is to provide examples of ways in which the biomedical paradigm is changing and giving way to this more kind of purposive or design-centered paradigm. So that's one way that people could follow me. You could look at what I've been writing on psychology today. Check out my website, justingarson.com, uh, and you can contact me through that. But that's the main thing I'm I'm doing now is writing these pieces, trying to give people very specific, concrete examples of what I mean when I talk about shifting from a dysfunction center to a design-centered framework.
3: Thank you so much what you're doing, Justin, because it's driving the conversation forward and it's helping everyone, including myself and all my listeners, by your contributions. So thank you.
4: Yeah, thank you, Molly. I appreciate it. So
0: after I wrapped my conversation with Justin, we continued to correspond by email and he sent me a draft for an article he was writing for Psychology Today about BPD, and I had an opportunity to check the draft out before it was published and offer Justin some of my insights after reading it, which was such a pleasure and exciting thing. I wanted to take an opportunity to read the final version of the article for you because it solidifies so much of what we've just shared in our conversation. I'm reading just a portion of the article because the first part of it just describes BPD in general and I think the majority of my listeners are familiar to that, so I'll skip straight to the part that really goes along with what we've been discussing today. So, Justin's article is titled, Is Borderline Personality Disorder an Adaptation? Seeing Beyond the Dysfunction Paradigm. And it's posted on Psychology Today on August 22nd, 2022. If you want to read the full article, I'll post a link to that in my show notes. So, Justin writes in the article Mainstream research often presents BPD as the result of a brain dysfunction. One leading idea is that it's caused by a frontal lobe deficit, which impacts ordinary impulse control. A very different picture has begun to emerge from the scientific literature, however. What if BPD is an adaptation, not a dysfunction? What if it's a designed response to the problems of life, not a disease? The main proponent of the idea that some BPD traits may reflect an adaptation is Martin Brun. Professor of Psychiatry at Ruhr University Brochum and a psychiatrist at LWL University Hospital. Side note from you, I may have just butchered the name of that university as well as the name of this professor, so I apologize. Brun has written on evolutionary psychiatry, which holds that we need to think about mental health and illness in terms of the big picture of the evolution of life on earth evolutionary psychologists often seem adaptation in what would otherwise strike us as pathology, such as with depression. Brune's account of BPD is based on the idea originally set out by psychologist John Bowlby that early in life, children develop an internal working model of the world. This is a picture that tells them what the world is like and how to survive and thrive in it. To some, The world is essentially a friendly and resource-plentiful place. Interpersonal relationships are durable, and they can expect their material and emotional needs to be met long into the future. Bowlby thinks that children with stable attachments are likely to develop such a model and view of the world. To others, the world is a hostile, unpredictable place attachments are inherently fleeting and fragile and there's no guarantee that resources either material or emotional will be available in the near future. Bowlby thought that children who do not have stable early attachments and at an extreme experience neglect, abuse, or other trauma are much more likely to form this second picture of the world. Now imagine how a child with this second picture of the world might think and act. They might mistrust others. Perhaps they'd be hypervigilant to signals of rejection and abandonment. With lower expectations about future provisions, this child might tend to have a more all-or-nothing approach to life, which an outside observer might call impulsive or dangerous. In short, they might develop and display traits associated with borderline personality disorder label. Brun does not think BPD is in itself an adaptation. He thinks it's an extreme and perhaps maladaptive version of an adaptation. Still, whether we see BPD traits as an adaptation or a maladaptive extreme of an adaptation, his view forces us to consider the potential value that those traits might have, or the value they may have had during a child's formative years. If BPD is an adaptation, then much of the language we use to describe it, brain defects, disorders, dysfunctions, diseases, are false and misleading. This is particularly troubling as such language can stigmatize people diagnosed with mental illnesses. In contrast, recent evidence on depression, at least, suggests that when people see their depression as a coherent response to the problems of life rather than a disease, they tend to feel more hopeful about a cure, more willing to see the positive side of their depression, and feel less stigma about telling other people about their struggles. Can the same be true of BPD? If so, that would inject a level of urgency into changing how we think and talk about it. I'm really excited to see that Justin is moving this conversation forward and posting on such prominent places like psychologytoday.com that will allow this new conversation to be presented to the thousands of people that may be exposed to this article. And that's exactly what we want to do is move the conversation forward And after I wrapped my conversation with Justin, I was reading one of my books that was set in the Middle Ages. For those of you who don't know, I am a huge nerd about the medieval times, specifically medieval England. In the Middle Ages, there was something called humorism or humoral theory, and it was a system of medicine that was adopted by ancient greek and roman physicians and philosophers but it also carried into the middle ages in england and people bought into this theory all the way up until the 1850s when germ theory came about which was able to effectively show that diseases previously thought to be due to imbalances of the humors were actually caused by microbes or germs So in the Middle Ages, the word humor was actually not humorous, like a funny joke. Humor actually meant fluid, and it referred to the four fluids that people in this time thought were present in our bodies. And these different humors, four of them were blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. And in an ideal situation, each of the humors were properly balanced. So people in the Middle Ages who believed in this theory of the four humors thought that we were in good health when our blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm were in balance. However, if one of these fluids overpowered the others, the body would become out of balance and cause medical and psychological illness and personality types moods psychosis and sickness were all easily explained in this time by either too much or too little of one of these different humors early philosophers and scientists actually believed that the four elements comprised everything in the universe including human beings these four elements being fire, air, earth, and water. And they strongly believed that these were also associated with our physical states, such as whether we were hot or cold or dry or moist. Hippocrates, an ancient Greek philosopher, he taught that an imbalance of the humors was the cause of illness. There is a quote by him that says, when all of these elements, the humors, are truly balanced and mingled, he feels the most perfect health. Illness occurs when one of these qualities is in excess or is lessened in amount or is entirely thrown out of the body. Because when one of these elements is isolated so that it has no balance by one of the others, the particular part of the body where it is supposed to make balance naturally becomes diseased. A common medical treatment to balance the humors when someone was ill was to be bled, to be cut on their arm to let out excess blood which was known to balance the humors or perhaps have leeches placed on their body to remove excesses of humors they truly believed that these different fluids in our bodies were literally causing us to be mentally or physically ill which is why a patient might be bled it would release the excessive humor that was causing this imbalance within them Humor is from the Latin humor meaning, surprisingly, moisture. That's why the word was applied to the body's fluids. These four fluids and the four humors being blood, phlegm, yellow bile, which was also called collar, and black bile called melancholy. People were believed to have a humor that predominated, and their personalities, complexions, and health were actually tied to the attributes of these humors so the different types were sanguine phlegmatic choleric and melancholy and people actually were considered to be born as one of these types but a well-balanced individual had an equal amount of each humor and you might be thinking one why the hell are you talking about this Molly and two this is crazy Thank God we've moved forward in our thinking from the dark Middle Ages. However, after my conversation with Justin, and then sitting there with my coffee reading this book that was talking about a girl who was getting bled and had leeches put on her to help her with her melancholy humors, to help balance her humors, I thought... Have we really come that far since the Middle Ages in our understanding of the human personality and our psychology? Thank goodness in around the 1850s, scientists came up with germ theory and then modern medicine made huge leaps and bounds, right? With the advent of antibiotics, people could actually live when they were dying from simple things like strep throat or a simple infection that can be cured with antibiotics. However, we haven't come much further when it comes to understanding our minds. We've swapped the imbalance of the different humors, these fluids in our bodies, for the chemical imbalance theory that we don't have enough serotonin in our brain that we have some broken imbalance within our minds that is giving us this disorder. Very, very similar ways of thinking. And the four humors and that way of looking at people wasn't very helpful back then. And we're also finding that this new model, this new imbalance model is not so helpful for us now. One thing we do know is that our bodies are wired survival and that our young brains are constantly trying to survive and the human mind is incredibly powerful. We develop our ways of being, our ways of seeing other people and the world that we're in based upon the neural pathways we developed and our response to our upbringing. What we have learned through the lens of neuroplasticity is that we can change our responses. We can change the way we view the world and other people. We can change our beliefs that have been deeply ingrained. But first, we have to see them for what they are, see our symptoms for what they are, which is a way that we've learned to respond, probably developed very, very early on in our childhood Maybe before we can even remember, it's an amazing adaptation. The smallest things, as a child, we perceive as threats to our survival. So, for anyone who thinks, oh, my childhood wasn't so bad, why am I experiencing these symptoms? I hope that this episode can open your mind and help you see that your childhood mind, your early, developing brain clearly perceived things that happened to you as threats to survival and this is what has wired you to be the way that you are now if someone endured serious abuse whether that be physical or sexual or serious amounts of emotional or physical neglect this will have even more dramatic impacts on the way that this person would see and interact with the world around them. But no matter what our early experiences, through this evolutionary lens, through this design rather than disorder lens, we can see more clearly, we can zoom out, we can depersonalize things in order to learn new ways of being, new ways of seeing the world and for many of us understanding that we are safe that our nervous systems are probably stuck in fight or flight and we can learn to constantly remind ourselves that now we have agency now we're in control and remind our bodies and our nervous systems that we are safe and that we're not stuck out in a cave somewhere being shunned by our tribe's people any longer But our brains don't know that. So it's up to us to take the seat of our higher awareness and remind ourselves of this. So I hope you enjoyed this little detour into my fascination with the Middle Ages. But I thought it was an incredible way to tie this conversation up because it reminds us for hundreds of years, we believed that all disease and psychological suffering came from the imbalance of random fluids in our bodies that was debunked. Now, for hundreds more years, we are believing that mental illness comes from a chemical imbalance in our brains. The best way to approach this is develop a healthy sense of skepticism. Only you can decide how your life moves forward. You are in control, you have agency, you can learn new ways to react and respond to life. You are not stuck in some kind of disease model that might not exist in the first place. So with that, I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. If you'd like to check out Justin's work, I'll be linking his website in the episode description. Over on the premium version of the podcast, we're continuing our episodes on The Hero's Journey. The Hero's Journey is a series that I've developed that helps us walk through the stages of psychological growth and individuation. So if you'd like to unlock those premium episodes, you can go to my website at backfromtheborderline.com and click unlock premium access. I think you'll really enjoy this. In my premium feed for the podcast, for those subscribers, we take recovery to a completely different level, a more spiritual place. We really dive under the hood and the core of the issues. And it is through work like this that I have found profound healing. So if that sounds interesting to you, head over to backfromtheborderline.com and check that out. You can also click the link at the bottom of the episode description. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you for being here with me, and I'll see you right back here next week.
1: Hold up.